All right, if you want to find your way back to your seats, we're going to be in the book of Ezra. Because the way I see it, nothing says Happy Mother's Day like Ezra. We're going to tie it in. It's going to be a little bit of a stretch, but we'll tie it in, okay? Um, we've been journeying through the Bible, one book each week in this sermon series called The Thread, showing how each of the books of the Bible, all 66 of them, find their fulfillment and connection in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, most of you this morning were probably like, yes, we're finally in Ezra. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, no, I've, uh, I've really enjoyed, honestly, the rawness of the book of Ezra. Um, it really resonates with much of what we feel in life. Would you pray with me as we open up God's word together? God, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity we have to read your living and active word that we not only read, but it reads us. God, would you reveal more of yourself to us? Help us to know who you are, love who you are, and worship with every fiber of our being. God, would you speak through me or in spite of me, but speak to every single person sitting in this place right now, I ask, in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, amen. Have you ever had a moment in life where everything you've been thinking about and dreaming about happens, and you're like, is this it? Maybe it was a job promotion that you sought, or a wedding day, or maybe winning the championship for your sports team. And, and, and when it happens, and, and you get what you long for, you think, I pictured this differently. I thought this would be more fulfilling. Or maybe you're dealing with disappointment or longing today. You're really hoping for something. I think the book of Ezra and Nehemiah speaks uniquely into both our hope and our disappointment. See, the book of Ezra, the people of God returned to Jerusalem from their 70 years of exile in the city of Babylon under the leadership of a guy by the name of Zerubbabel, which is a great name for those who are having boys. You might want to consider it. Just saying. Too bad we had two girls up here today, right? I mean, and how cool is that? Seven babies today being dedicated to the Lord. It's amazing. It's amazing. So a guy by the name of Zerubbabel, who's a descendant of David, and Yeshua, who's a descendant of Aaron, the high priest, lead the people in their return to Jerusalem, and, and their task is to rebuild the temple of God, and in so doing, rebuild their lives and their homes. And this is what God's people, for 70 years, have been waiting for, and longing for, and hoping for, and dreaming about. And when the time comes that the temple foundation is laid, well, there are some who are filled with joy to the point where they shout out loud, just cheering. There are others who see the size of the temple and grieve and remember what they lost. See, the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, are actually one book. They tell a story of the people of God returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple in three different waves. But in our Bibles, they're bo broken up into two different books because in, in a lot of ways, they read very differently and they talk about the ministry of two different people. However, there is a unified overall structure to this united book that I think helps us to understand some of the core meaning. Here's a quick overview video and then I'll just break down the structure for you and then we'll be in chapter one. The book of Ezra was likely written by Ezra between 460 and 440 BC. 
telling the story of Israel's return to the Promised Land after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Cyrus, king of Persia, is motivated by God to initiate the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. He tasks an Israelite named Zerubbabel to lead the first wave of exiles back to their homeland to lay the foundation of the temple. This would fulfill Jeremiah's prophecy of Israel's return to Jerusalem, continuing God's covenant. Zerubbabel begins rebuilding the temple. However, God does not fill this new temple with his presence, and the priests and elders lament the new state of things. The reconstruction efforts continue despite the added pressure of adversaries surrounding Jerusalem. The conflicts delay the project, but eventually the second temple is completed. Sixty years later, an Israelite scholar named Ezra is appointed by the Persian king Artaxerxes to return to Jerusalem to bring about social and spiritual renewal. As Ezra begins teaching the law, he discovers the intercultural marriages between Israelites and foreigners, a direct affront to God's commands. Ezra is grieved that the people have broken God's law and responds by issuing a divorce decree outside of God's commands. The decree yields mixed results, and the book ends with Israel in a turbulent social and spiritual state. All right, let's go. Okay, so the first six chapters of the book of Ezra cover the initial return of God's people from the city of Babylon under Cyrus's decree. Uh, Zerubbabel and Yeshua are the two people who lead this work, and they are aided in the building or rebuilding of the temple by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. They actually have books of the Bible that we'll get to eventually. Ezra chapter 7 to 10 happens 57 years after the completion of the temple, and it focuses in on the ministry of Ezra, who is a priest and a Bible scholar, as he seeks to re-implement the Mosaic law as the center for the life in the community of God's people. And then the book of Nehemiah occurs 13 years after Ezra comes, where Nehemiah, moved of God, comes and seeks to rebuild and ends up rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem so that the, the city and the people of God can flourish in the city. And at the end of Ezra and chapters, or, uh, Nehemiah chapters 8 to 12, under Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a, there's a revival that happens. Uh, uh, the Passover is celebrated, and God's people pledge themselves in, in covenant to God yet again. And then it ends with kind of a thud in chapter 13 when Nehemiah leaves for a while and comes back and realizes that all of the same problems that have plagued God's people are still there even after this great outpouring and revival. So in light of that, we're going to look at the first section and then next week we'll be in Nehemiah and we'll look at the, the rebuilding efforts and the work that's done under Ezra and Nehemiah. So chapter 1, verse 1. You can turn there in your Bibles or it'll be up on the screen or you can tap there in your Bibles if you're techie like that. Also, I just want to say, if you don't own a Bible, there's one in the sanctuary uh, slot in front of you or in the row. We would love for you to just take that home. We would love for you to have God's word and be able to read that. So, 1, 1 to 5. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, whoever among, whoever among you 
of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his palace with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So the book of Ezra begins right where the book of Second Chronicles ends with this proclamation of King Cyrus moved by God that after 70 years in Babylon, the people could go home. If you remember their history, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and sacked the city of Jerusalem. He tore down the temple and all of the important people of Jerusalem, he moved out and exiled to the city of Babylon. They've been living there now for 70 years. But Babylon is conquered by another empire, the Persian Empire. And unlike the Babylonians, and they still had their challenges, but they were a lot more kind to the people that had been conquered. And so the Jewish people, among other people, they basically issue this edict and say, you can go home. Go home. Go back to your homeland. And Cyrus even ups it and says, go back to your homeland and rebuild the temple of your God in Jerusalem. And he actually gives them some money to pay for it. Now, you've got to remember that this story isn't happening in isolation, but is part of the broader story of God's relationship with his people. This event that Cyrus actually enacts is the fulfillment of prophecy that, that Isaiah and Jeremiah had been predicting way before it happened. In Jeremiah 25 and in Jeremiah 32 and in Jeremiah 29, he is predicting that they will go, but that they will come back after 70 years. Let me just read one of them, and maybe you've heard it before. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. So Jeremiah is speaking from Jerusalem to the exiles in Babylon, saying, your time won't be forever. For I know, verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now many of us have heard some of those verses before, especially Jeremiah 29, 11. It has a way of getting on Christian coffee cups and on t-shirts and things like that. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. It's on like every, you know, God's thoughts for the graduate, right? You know, we see these books come out, right? The, the beautiful thing about that is it reveals God's heart for his people and the fact that he is not done with them, nor is he done with you. However, it's actually a very specific promise to the people living in exile saying, hey, it's not going to go well for a while. You're going to be here for 70 years, but I won't forget about you. I still have plans for you. I have plans to prosper and not to harm you. You will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. When these 70 years are completed, you'll come back. Do you see how maybe it's not the most responsible thing to just slap that on whatever thing and just say, hey, this promise is for you? 
It's a promise for the people of God, but that God's heart in the promise is very clearly for us, that he isn't done with us. And so what Cyrus is doing here has been planned by God. Cyrus is the king. He's the emperor. He's a God among men is what he claims to be. And yet God moves his heart and he does just what God has planned for him to do. Now, this decree serves as a hyperlink, so to speak, of all of the messianic promises that begin to emerge from Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the other prophets. All of these things should come to mind of the return, the restoration of the kingdom, the Messiah that will come. And so as the the promises of comfort from Isaiah, that there will be this highway returning and that God will comfort his people. And so there's a, a sense of building hope in these verses that all of these things are going to now come to pass. See, in verse 1 and in verse 5, we see that God stirs up the heart of King Cyrus, and then in verse 5, God stirs up the heart of his people to go home and rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, when you read the pages of Scripture, it's easy to think, why do they need to be stirred up to do that? This is what they were hoping for, isn't it? This is what they were longing for, but to, to just read the Bible that way loses completely the human element of it. Most of us in this room are not even 70 years old. There's a few are. Awesome. So glad you're here. Amen. Amen. All right. But can you imagine after 70 years saying, okay, it's time to go home. Pastor Dean was talking in our preaching meeting. He's a pastor at our Chester Park campus. And he said, you know, my great-grandfather immigrated to America from Germany. He's like, and I distinctly remember as I was studying these passages, the the time when it was 70 years from when my grandfather had immigrated to the States. If someone would have come to me as a young man saying, you get to go home, he'd have been like, I I am home. Like, this is all I ever know. I mean, my my family runs the corner shop over there in Babylon. This is is home. And yet, God is saying, no, I'm going to draw you back. And so he stirs up among the people. And do you know how many people end up leaving? It wasn't all of them. If you read chapter 2, you'll find in verse 64 that it was 42,360 people that God stirred up to go back to the nation. Now, Zerubbabel, the leader, the descendant of David, think like heir to the throne. Do you know what his name literally means? It means planted in Babylon. He was born in Babylon. That was his home, and yet he has a higher calling on his life, and so he leads the people back to Jerusalem. If you ever want some awesome reading, chapter 2 is a whole list of all of the people who go and all of their descendants. And so if you're struggling to fall asleep at night, that might be some great reading. Read Ezra chapter 2. We can get another genealogy out of the deal. For our purposes this morning, let's look at the end of chapter 1. Cyrus again says, let each survivor, verse 4, in whatever place he sojourns be assisted in this work by the men of the place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then they're stirred up. And then verse 6, and all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. King Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods, and then he gives them back, and there's a detailed list of all that he gives back. So, not only are the people now leaving a foreign land in order to return to the promised land, their homeland, but as they go, they are given a bunch of gold and silver and livestock and treasure from the people that are sending them. Now, for those of you who have been here the entire time overlooking the Bible story, does that ring any bells whatsoever to you? Yeah. 
It should remind you of what happened with the first exodus. When the people of God left Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, they went and asked the, Egyptian for the Egyptians for their gold and silver and livestock, and they just handed them over as they went. It's another hyperlink, so to speak, to kind of build your sense of anticipation that God is doing this again. Uh, Ezra is kind of putting them as a, as a new exile or a new exodus-type people um, with all of the prophetic promises attached to it. And so you can see why the anticipation around this return is beginning to build. Jump with me to chapter 3, and we see kind of the story continue. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, the son of jo Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening, and they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required." And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. It's a lot of details, isn't it? So they make the journey down, they begin to resettle, and then the leaders of this new group emerge and they say, we need to set some things in order. Jeshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the descendant of David. And what is the first thing that they do? They rebuild the altar to Yahweh so that they can begin offering sacrifices on it. So that they can restore the center of worship among God's people. And then the second thing they do is they reinstitute the religious calendar. They celebrate the Feast of Booths. I think for two reasons. One is because it was the time of the year that they were to celebrate it. But two, also to commemorate their recent journey as the people now returning in Exodus back to the promised land. And after reestablishing their worship calendar and, and their, their worship rituals, they turned their attention then to the rebuilding of the temple. The reason Cyrus had sent them and what was on their heart to restore the place, the house of God, so that God could once again dwell amongst his people. And, the, and just like the people of God after leaving Egypt offer a free will offering to construct the tabernacle, so they begin a collection from the people to now rebuild the temple. Do you see all the parallels going on here? So they begin planning it. They hire workers. And here's the rest of the story. Verse 8. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, king of Israel." 
And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And this is what they sang. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and a sound was heard far away. Now there's a lot more to the story. In chapter 4, opposition begins to arise so that progress on the temple is halted for a, about a decade or so. They kind of made accusations against them and got the king to decree that the, the work was to cease so that God has to raise up two prophets by the name of Haggai and Zechariah to get the temple project back on track. And they end up building it and dedicating it in chapter 6 of our story. But I want to lean on a few things that happen in the narrative in chapter 3. The first is that when they begin to see progress on the temple, namely the foundations get laid for the temple, they stop and they celebrate the progress. Now, that sounds kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? There's a lot of work to be done. Why stop? Well, they stop and they celebrate the progress because God has done a great thing in already getting them to this point. Now, if you're wired at all like me, this, this can often be a challenge for you because right on the heels of God doing something amazing, usually your mind is already planning and dreaming and thinking about what we're going to do next. And all the people around you are tired. And you're like, no, look at this. This just happened. Now we're going to do this. And people are like, can we, just, can we just celebrate what God did here? One of the things that I've learned over the years as a man, as a pastor, is that it is important to stop and celebrate the progress. You know, one of the things I've learned in my Christian life is that I am not who I want to be. I am not the finished product of what God has dreamed me to be. But by the grace of God, I'm not what I was. And there's some progress along the way that is worth celebrating. I bet the same is true for you. You're not who you will ultimately be in glory, but because of God's grace, you're not what you were. And there's been some beautiful progress along the way. I think this story teaches us that from time to time, we need to stop as individuals and celebrate the progress. And sometimes as a church, we need to stop and we need to celebrate the progress of what God has done. And Josh is actually going to tell you about a family fun day. I, I didn't have that as part of my sermon, but one of the reasons we're doing that is to celebrate what God has done in, in many ways, bringing us through this crazy pandemic of the last two years and being at work in the midst of all of it. It's important that we stop and we celebrate the progress. So the priests come out in their vestments or their robes and they start blowing the trumpets and then the Levites, who've been overseeing the construction work, come with their cymbals, and they start banging it. And so I just want to say, if you think our music is too loud, it got a little raucous in the Bible sometimes, right? Can you imagine a worship service with just trumpets and cymbals being the, the worship-leading instruments? Yeah. Some of you guys are like, I want that. And Jesse's like, I, I can make that happen. I can make that happen. And when they sing, they begin to sing responsively to the Lord. And we read in verse 11, this is what they sang. For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. 
Now, that's a significant thing because if you go back in two places in the book of First and Second Chronicles, when David brings the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem for the first time, this is the end of the song that he sings. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. And then when Solomon dedicates the temple and brings the ark of the covenant to be brought into the temple, this is what happens. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison, in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. When the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals, did that ring a bell? And other musical instruments. So I guess there was other things too, maybe brought it down a little bit. In praise to the Lord. But what did they say? For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. Now that's talking about when Solomon completed the temple, the glory of the Lord descended on that temple and his presence dwelt in it. We're going to see, spoiler, that that doesn't actually happen with this temple in Ezra and Nehemiah. But the people here are reenacting the story and the forms of worship that have been handed down to them. They are a worshipped-formed, story-formed people. And when they sing, they focus on God's steadfast love. The Hebrew word is hesed, his, his covenant love, his faithful love, his pursuing love. And they focus on the fact that this love will endure for just a few minutes. No, this love, this pursuing covenantal love will endure forever. That's good news. And then just before, there's not just singing, there's also a loud shout of praise in glory to God. Think a stadium filled with adoring fans cheering on a game-winning touchdown. That's the kind of shout of praise. Now, if you're a Vikings fan, that doesn't happen very often, but you can imagine what it would be like. They're singing, and they're praising, and they're shouting and giving glory to God. But then we realize that this shout is a bit of a mixed bag. See, those who are experiencing the event for the first time are shouting with nothing but excitement and joy and praise. But those who are older who remember what they lost, look at the pitiful size of the foundation of the new temple. And they weep. And they grieve. See, if I had to come up with a word for this particular moment, it would be bittersweet. On one hand, they are rejoicing in what God has brought out of the rubble and the ashes. And on the other hand, they grieve over what has been lost. But isn't that so much of life in a nutshell? Beauty, joy, praise, endless possibilities for the future. Grief, pain, brokenness, and the loss of what could have been or what you dreamed it to be. Today of all days, we should get this reality, shouldn't we? It's Mother's Day, a, a day of great joy and excitement, a day where we, we dedicate seven new lives to the Lord, a day to remember the sacrifice day in and day out of this often thankless task to make the world a better place. Those who invest their lives in little ones day after day with very little instant gratification in hopes that those kids might one day change the world or at least not make it a worse place. A a day to celebrate the new life that is in our midst with prayers and hopes and dreams and commitments and laughter and shouts of praise. And so we shout in praise because we can't contain it. We love the little children and we see them as a blessing and we honor mothers 
And yet to others, this is a day filled with grief and with loss. The loss of a child. The battle with infertility and the death of a dream. Maybe your mom is not here this year, but she was last year, and you feel the loss acutely today. Maybe you desire to be married and to be a mom someday or a dad someday, and this is just a painful little twist of the knife that what you thought your life was going to be like isn't at all what it's like. And so when you see other moms get to become moms, you rejoice with them, and there's a little stab of pain there's a, there's a death of a dream for you that you have to trust in the Lord. And so this great day of celebration is mingled with grief and pain. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are often turned to as manuals for revival. For insights into prayer or leadership insights or even a template on what happens when revival hits. And yet for all of the incredible things accomplished by God's people in these books... There's a constant mixed feeling of joy and disappointment. The temple foundation is laid, but it's nowhere near the splendor of the previous one. The temple is finally finished, but God's presence doesn't descend on it like it did in the original temple. The people purify themselves from defilement. They even go so far as to divorce their wives and send some of their children away, which you wonder, did God really ask you to do that? And the result is mixed, rightly speaking, right? The city wall gets built under Nehemiah, in Nehemiah spoiler. Um, yet justice doesn't reign in Jerusalem like he thought it would. There's a revival that takes place in chapters 8 to 12 of Nehemiah. And yet the, the, the conclusion of the book in chapter 13 is Nehemiah coming back and realizing that all of the same problems that started still exist in God's people and he goes on this angry rampage, and he pulls out the beards of the men. And the last lines of the book are, well, God, at least remember that I tried. And that's kind of the point, that the reforms and the, the gains of Ezra and Nehemiah are significant, but they leave you wanting more. No one comes to the end and says, God did it. This is the end. Because these things weren't an end in themselves. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus comes along in the New Testament, he doesn't quote or allude to anything that happens in Ezra, Nehemiah, or Esther during his earthly ministry. Interesting, isn't it? Now, it doesn't mean that they were unimportant or even worse, false stories. They were true. But it's interesting that many of the books that we often turn to to see how revival comes about leave us with a bunch of revivals that don't produce lasting change. But maybe the point of it is to help us lean into the tension of progress and disappointment, of celebration and grief, of brokenness and hope. Now, some of you guys are like, Pastor Kyle, this is a depressing message. Well, it depends on how you look at it. For it's often in our deepest pain and grief that we sense God's nearness the most, isn't it? In those moments of deep loneliness that we feel the presence and comfort of our Lord with us in the most profound of ways. Think even of the gospel itself. In a moment that looked like Jesus' greatest loss, he was achieving his most resounding victory. Death to life. Life through death. This is the hope of the gospel. 
the disappointment in the people of Ezra and Nehemiah were felt in Jesus' day as well. See, when Jesus came along, they expected him to be, well, frankly, more. More attractive, more charismatic, more compelling, more powerful, more able to lead an army, more willing to set his power against the worldly power of Rome, more traditional in keeping with the traditions of the elders. And he wasn't. He didn't fit. And that was the best thing that could ever happen for us. Amen? Because he came not to just reestablish an earthly kingdom, but to renew and redeem all people and all things, and a people for himself that will dwell with him forever. You see, the temple was the place in which God's tangible presence was to dwell with his people. And the great disappointment of this particular temple project in Ezra is that God's presence didn't dwell there like it had in the previous temple. Now, if you would just allow me a moment to step back from the story and look at this theme of temple all throughout the biblical story, let me tell you the payoff is good at the end, all right? So the Bible begins with God creating man and woman and placing them in a garden, and the Garden of Eden is temple-like in its, uh, in its language and its approach. The people dwelt with God and walked with him in the cool of the day. There was no sin that separated a holy God from his creation. We dwelt with God and lived with God and everything was the way that we were intended to live. But then sin enters and separates us from a holy God so that Adam and Eve are exiled from the presence of God from the Garden of Eden. And it was under Moses that God had them construct the tabernacle, which if you look at the, the things in the temple and the tabernacle, there are all of these echoes of Eden. Basically, it was to be the place where God's presence dwelt in the midst of a holy people. But the people, because they were sinful, could not just go into God's presence on their own terms. There was all of these various degrees of separation that could be overcome with purity and sacrificial laws so that they could purify themselves and approach a holy God. And in the very center of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, a cube-shaped room in this tent or this tabernacle that was where the presence of God dwelt in most concentrated form. And only one Israelite, the high priest, was allowed to go in there on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, where he made sacrifice for the people. Under Solomon, the, the tabernacle becomes a permanent temple as they build it with brick and stone and mortar and, and, and wood. And in the middle of that is the holy place. It was, its dimensions were similar to that of the tabernacle, just on a larger scale. Um, when Solomon's temple was destroyed, a lesser version that we read about by the people in our story today was, was built. But God's presence didn't dwell there like it once had. Now later on, that temple is torn down and it's replaced by one that Herod the Great built. A, a newer and a grander temple. In fact, it was far greater in size and splendor and scope than even Solomon's temple. It was the temple that Jesus would enter and walk into and turn over the tables. But that temple, despite its, its grandiosity and splendor and riches, completely missed the point. I think God was preparing his people to experience his presence in a totally different way. And here are the words of John in the first chapter of his gospel. We'll just skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is tabernacled among us. 
And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so in the days of Jesus, the tangible, visible glory of God was not seen in the temple, but rather in a flesh and blood person who came to us. And the people were upset that Jesus didn't honor the temple like he was supposed to. Meanwhile, Jesus is thinking what the temple pointed to is standing right before your eyes in flesh and blood, and it was hidden from them. Now, that's not where the temple theme ends, but rather we see when Jesus hangs on that Roman cross and he gives up his spirit and he cries out, it is finished. In the temple, this place where God's glory was said to have dwelled, the veil of the temple separating the holy of holies from the holy place was torn in two the instant that Jesus dies, symbolically granting us access to the presence of the Father because of what Jesus had just done. That the work of salvation was finished. It was finished by him that we believe in that and now we have access to God. And get this, God's presence now doesn't dwell in a building but rather in his people through the, the Holy Spirit. The one that Jesus sent, the third member of the Trinity that now dwells inside God's people, opening our eyes to God so that we can actually live with and dwell with God. And then if you notice, the church never builds another temple again. Why? Because we are the temple and when we gather, you get a concentrated version of God's presence on the earth when you're among his people. That's good news. But you know what? Even that only points to a greater reality that is to come. Last illusion. If you go to the end of your Bibles in Revelation chapter 21, you see the new Jerusalem, the city of God, coming down out of heaven to this earth. And it's shaped like a really large cube that almost spans the, the length of our country and is as high as it is deep and it is long. Now, either there is some architectural marvel taking place, and that could be, or maybe God is showing us through symbolism something about what the new creation will be like. What else is cube in its shape? What have we been talking about? The temple, the holy of holies, what was lost in Eden, the presence of God dwelling with his people and walking among his people, what will be restored when Jesus comes back? The presence of God dwelling with his people on the earth. And so we get to taste that now, but we don't get to taste it like we fully will one day when Jesus actually walks among us. When we will be his people and he will be our God and there will be no more tears in our eyes or sickness or pain or death because all things have been renewed. And God is doing that work. So that when we read about this pitiful temple in Ezra and Nehemiah and it leaves us longing for more. Or when we taste and see in a very real way, we experience the presence of God individually and we experience the presence of God when we gather together. It keeps us or fills us with a sense of longing that this isn't the full meal. It's an appetizer. And I'm still hungry for more. I don't know where you're at this morning. You might be on top of the world. You had your grandkid or daughter dedicated today. Or maybe you're in the deepest throes of pain and grief, and this is a really hard day. Wherever you are, God can and longs to meet with you and dwell with you today. And he is preparing to return and turn this entire earth once again into a temple where his presence dwells with his people forever. That's the missing piece in Ezra and Nehemiah, and that is what fills all of us 
with a sense of longing that nothing in this world can fully fulfill. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for this good word. Lord, we often experience frustration in our life that what we think is going to deliver doesn't actually deliver because we were created not just for this life, but for something more. God, would you allow us as your people to live in light of that day so that today is even more real? And will you fulfill the deepest longing in our soul? God, make us content in you so that the, the joy and the peace that comes from dwelling with you overflows from our lives individually and corporately. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and continue worshiping with us through singing, through giving, and through hearing about different ways you can get involved?